I can remember when I was uh, a child. I don't want to say that this was often, but it did happen. My brothers and I would do something wrong. And my mother would say what I imagine some of you heard when you were growing up. Wait until your father comes home. Now, if you did not hear that, I want to be clear, that was not a good thing. It was not a promise of joy. It meant that when he came home, things would get much worse. I personally can remember the nerves I would have when my mother would tell me that right up to the point that my dad would arrive and I can remember when he did arrive, how the nerves ratcheted up even more. I started to think about that scenario and how it could have been totally different. What if I didn't believe my mom and I ratcheted up my own disobedience? I kept doing it. Can you imagine the shock that a young Josh Manley would have known when dad came home and exercised all of his rightness and authority in disciplining me? The same is true, isn't it, when a citizen of our nation commits treason against our government? We don't need, uh, when that happens, some long justification for why they should be punished, why they should be addressed. Of course, we can escalate this even more. Imagine when the rightful owner and king of the whole world comes back to set everything that's been wrong to right. We live in a wicked world, a world that so easily has no regard for the true king of the world. And the book of Revelation assures us with certainty, there is a day when the king will come around. That the risen Christ will return to judge. And that's exactly what we're going to consider this morning in Revelation 19. It's the very last book of the Bible. The big number is the chapter. The little numbers are the verses. And we're going to look just at verses 11 through 21 this morning. And very simply, I I hope you you see this main point. King Jesus will return in glory, and he will judge his enemies. King Jesus will return in glory, and he will judge his enemies. I want us to consider how this affects our lives in the interim through three very simple points. Christ return... It's 11 to 16, Christ's invitation, Christ's judgment, his return, his invitation, and then finally Christ's judgment. May God apply his word to your heart this morning by the Spirit. Let's begin by seeing first Christ's return. Look down at verse 11, Christ's return. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name, the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Earlier in this book, when we were in chapter 4, just after the, the letters that we went through to the seven churches, John saw a door to heaven opened. Here he doesn't see just a door. He sees heaven itself. So John is receiving more revelation. We just saw the destruction of of Babylon, and now we are seeing the the final judgment, the, the same scene told from a different perspective. And right here in, in verse 11, John sees a white horse. What does that mean? Well, we can see clearly what it means because John tells us who is sitting on the horse, the one who is called faithful and true. This is the risen Christ. It's exactly how the risen Christ identified himself earlier in this letter to the the church at Laodicea. We read there the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. And we also learn here what it is Christ has come to do. In righteousness, he judges and he makes war. This is what the Psalms said of God. He will judge the world in righteousness, the peoples with faithfulness. It's exactly what Taft read to us earlier from Isaiah 11. With righteousness, he shall judge. So the risen Christ is the one appointed by the Father with the great task of judging the world. Now this should give you confidence and hope as a Christian That in this unrighteous world, a righteous judgment is coming. Judgment is something that even the the smallest children want. We get in a fight with our sibling. What do we do? We run to our parents. We immediately ask them to settle this major dispute over who had the toy first. Of course, that takes the wisdom of Solomon to figure out. As we get older, we see racism. We see injustice from our employers in our workplace. We want a just judgment. We're hardwired for it. And here on an infinitely greater scale, your hope as a Christian is met as the risen Christ comes to judge with righteousness. And he makes war. In his first coming, the lamb suffered. The lamb was slain. Not in the second coming. The lion comes. And he comes to conquer. And he slays and he defeats his enemies. It will be unlike the many unjust wars that are fought in this world. This is a just war. It will be carried out with exacting justice. 
I want you to look at the majesty, the authority, the power with which the the risen Christ who is returning is described here. His eyes are like a flame of fire. It's exactly how John described him back in chapter 1. His eyes like a flame of fire. Why? His sight is penetrating. He sees everything. He cuts through human facades. Nothing will escape his justice. And on his head are are many diadems, just another word for crowns. Remember back in chapter 12, we learned that the dragon had seven diadems. The dragon has this kind of authority in this present age, but it's only for a time. It's all under the sovereign reign and rule of of King Jesus who has many diadems. He is the king crowned with many crowns. And we read there at the end of verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Way back in Genesis, Jacob wrestled with an angel who would not disclose his name to Jacob. No one knows Christ's name because no one rules over Christ. No one controls Christ. We know from his word, we know Christ truly, but it would be a mistake to know, think that we know Christ exhaustively. All eternity will not be enough for us to ever, ever grow tired, ever lose our wonder of Jesus Christ. We're never going to grow bored in knowing Jesus Christ. It's going to be like climbing a giant mountain. We will see vistas of his glory again and again and again. Be careful that you're not shrinking the Lord Jesus Christ down to just a larger vision of yourself. Brothers and sisters, very practically, there should be no universe in which Netflix, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter are more captivating to us than Jesus Christ. His glory is eternal. And if you are ever bored with the Lord Jesus Christ, the problem is not with Christ. Look at verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's tempting for us to read that and to immediately think that the robe dipped in blood means the blood that he shed for sinners. But there's actually another image of the Messiah's robe being stained with blood. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 63, he he writes of the coming day when the Messiah will come in vengeance. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, stained all my apparel. That's the background here for John's vision. The, The robe dipped in blood here is not a suffering robe. It's one of conquering. It was in his first coming that Christ the Lamb shed his blood and he was slain to save his enemies. In his second coming, Christ the Lion will shed blood as he conquers his enemies. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He is the climax of God's revelation to the world. He is the Word made flesh. He is God's message to this world for both salvation, and judgment. Do you see how the Apostle John will not let us skip over the glory of Christ? 
We've gone through these previous chapters. John has taken us behind the scenes of of history to, to show us this great cosmic spiritual battle that's taking place. And here's John slowing down for us to describe to us the glory of our king. He's shown us that this world is filled with so many idols and cheap passing glory. And here is this vision that readjusts our sight so that we might see the majesty, the authority, the power, the perfection of the world's true king. One of my favorite movies when I was growing up was Braveheart. It's a story of William Wallace, 13th century Scottish warrior who leads an an army of, of Scots to fight against the English. And he comes to this army of ragtag Scotsmen for the first time and for Many of them, to to see him for the first time was not what they expected in person. In that scene, after they've seen him, one of the Scots actually cries out after Wallace says, I am William Wallace. He says, William Wallace is seven feet tall. He doesn't believe that this is William Wallace. The, The man in person does not match the myth. And of course, Wallace goes on to give what I think is one of the most captivating speeches in cinematic history. I'm not gonna thought about redoing it, but I'm not going to do it for you. You can talk to me after the service about that. The point is, when the risen King Jesus comes, he will not underwhelm. He will not disappoint. It will be the exact opposite reaction of that Scotsman when he saw Wallace. No one will be confused that this is Christ and his glory. And as we, the church, wait In faith, as we suffer in witness, the risen Christ means for us to be sure of his glory. The risen Christ means for us to be sure that when he comes, we will be confident our waiting is not in vain. Look who comes with the risen Christ in verse 14. This is not a ragtag crew. It's the armies of heaven, fine linen, white and pure. They too are on white horses. Who are the armies of heaven? Are they angels? That's possible. But in this book already, back in chapter 6, we've read of those martyred for their faith, crying out under the altar, How long, O Lord? How long until you avenge our blood? And what did the risen Christ give them? White robes. And he told them to wait a little longer. It seems they are included in the armies of heaven. Suffering now conquering, coming with Christ as he brings his judgment. But how will Christ judge? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. We saw this again in Revelation 1. The the sword comes from his mouth because it's his word that brings judgment. How powerful is God's word? It's the same word with which God created the world. It's the same word with which God will judge the world. So don't fear the powers of this world. Whether it's governments that some of you have known oppression from, or whether it's your workplace, or your friends, or your circumstances, you can replace fear with greater and right thoughts of Christ whose word will strike down the nations. 
We, we saw this earlier in Isaiah 11. What did I, the prophet write? With the breath of his lips, the Messiah will kill the wicked. How strange that this world is so taken with nuclear bombs. Not something to be unconcerned about, but taken with nuclear bombs when Christ's word is clearly far more powerful. Brothers and sisters, we the church have his word. We have what is most powerful, which will determine destiny of nations and kings. We do not fear the nations. We go confidently to the nations because we have the word. And we know Christ will rule the nations here with a rod of iron. He is the appointed and chosen Messiah of Psalm 2 who will break the nations with a rod of iron. He's the child of Revelation 12 who is told, we're told, will do the exact same. And verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, that's from Isaiah 63. It's an image of of judgment. He's entitled to judge. Why? Verse 16, on his robe is his name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Here is the glory, here is the certainty of the coming of Jesus Christ on full display for all of us. I think this description of Christ is, is overwhelming. It raises our affections for Christ. It gives us confidence in Christ. It should give us boldness for Christ. And because he is bound to you as a Christian, it should increase your enjoyment of Christ. It's so easy for us to be dulled to the glory of Christ. If you're a student here, I wonder what captures your heart, what glories you're chasing. Is it your own image? Is it social media? Do you love all of that more than Christ? Your thoughts of Jesus Christ, if that's true, are too small. I want you to treasure Christ. I want you to see his infinite worth and glory over everything in this world. Clearly from this text, we're meant to see Jesus Christ is God. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And what he's doing here shows he's the fulfillment of all that was promised about the Davidic kingship as God's anointed one. He appears on a white horse. The the armies of heaven are coming with him. His name is King of Kings. Here's Christ's glory on full display. Better than all the glories of Babylon that fade away in an hour. So if you see here the glory of Christ, how does that compare to what you treasure as glory? Because what you're treasuring you will give your life for. I think one great way for all of us to pray in response to this text is to ask God to increase our treasuring of Christ. To to, to be in real relationships in this body that will help us to this end. This is a, a fight. Personally speaking, one of God's clearest kindnesses to me in my entire life was to give me faithful brothers in the Lord who have helped me treasure Christ over the stuff of this world and how I ongoing need that. Treasuring 
Christ leads to more joy in Christ, leads to steadfastness in Christ, faithfulness to Christ. How regularly are you spending time meditating and enjoying the glory of Christ? How does that compare to your social media intake, your, your website's intake? All of that, all of that cannot compare to the glory of Christ. And neither can the glories of this world. In his journal on a December 9th, the 18th century Methodist preacher John Wesley, he was about to preach before the parliament and he recorded this. I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of lords, the upper house, when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age, quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can give even to a king? All the grandeur it can afford? A huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. What a bauble is human greatness. Even this will not endure. How different it will be when the world sees the world's true king. It will not underwhelm. It will not fail to impress. It will be like nothing we have ever seen. Choose the glory you chase with your life wisely. Only one glory will last forever. His glory is certain, but so also is his coming. This text should come to us and it should help us to see there is an immovable date on the calendar. Christ coming. It's because we believe that he's coming We do things with our lives that make no sense to this world. Martin Luther just famously said, there are two days on the calendar, this day and that day. So we live all of this days in light of that day. And that should shape our lives with a a Christ-saturated wisdom and ambition. It's why, praise God, so many of you are here. You're certain of that day. It's one of the major reasons we as a church exist together that day. We want to bear witness to Christ. We want to compel others to come to Christ in view of that day. Gospel preaching churches are like signposts telling the world another king and another kingdom are coming. This coming day is why we so intentionally commit our lives together We covenant together. We're seeking to guard each other in view of that day and help each other grow in view of that day. If you're a Christian, you should be encouraged that Christ is coming. You're not to fear this. His eyes like a a flame of fire seeing through facades. It's what we've seen again in Revelation. Christ is going to bring a judgment that will not have a hint, not one hint of injustice. When Christ comes this second time, Christ will come as the wrath bringer. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. But Christian, you do not have to fear Christ the wrath bringer because you know Christ as the wrath bearer. He satisfied the wrath of God for your sin on the cross. And if you've trusted wholly in Jesus Christ, 
you must know this. Christ Jesus went to the cross with his eyes wide open. He saw and he sees the depth of us. What surprises us about ourselves does not surprise the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for that sin. He died for that struggle that you have. You do not have to be afraid of your Savior. His love for you came at the cost of his blood. If you're not a Christian, I do want you to see here the goodness of Jesus Christ. I want you to come to Christ by faith. Christ will come in wrath, but he first came into the world to bear wrath. You know well, we all know something's wrong with this world. It's not what it was created to be. We were all created in the image of God, to know God, to love him, to enjoy God. God has made us. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more satisfying than God. But we decided to rebel against God, the good God of the world. And so we deserve his judgment. And even if we spend our whole lifetimes doing a bunch of good works, it will never outweigh our guilt But so good is God that in his mercy and in his grace, he has sent his son into the world. Mysteriously, God the son has taken on flesh. He's lived a life to represent other sinners. He's lived, he's died in the place of sinners. And remarkably, miraculously, Christ was raised from the dead. One resurrection in a world full of death, Christ came to bear wrath so that we would not have to receive wrath, but eternal life from God. Christ has come to save before he's come to judge. Don't stay away from Christ. Come to Christ by faith. Find life in the name of Jesus Christ. He will receive you. I want you to wrestle with what this text is is saying Christ coming as the king of the universe doesn't just mean he has the ability, he has the authority to judge. Many diadems, king of kings, lord of lords. We live in a world that tries to conveniently ignore Christ, but he will not be ignored forever. Did you notice? He needs no invitation to enter his world. He opens the heavens. He comes back. On his timetable, the coming of Christ is a a massive topic. I'd love to talk to you more about that. If you have questions, any of the members of this body would love to talk to you about that. I would urge you to come to Christ the King before Christ the King comes back. Brothers and sisters, Christ reigns. Our life together, unified as a body, testifies to that. His coming will visibly confirm that. In this in-between time, Jesus Christ has not lost one bit of the all authority that God the Father has given to him. Our life together bears witness to this coming day. Christ will return. And when he does, Christ will issue an invitation. That's our second point, Christ's invitation. Look at verses 17 through 18. Christ's invitation. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. When he comes... He will issue a great invitation. Here it's given by an angel standing in the sun. It's evidence of the angel's glory over the earth. The invitation goes out in a loud voice. It will not be missed. I think if we're honest, we would say we find this to be really strange. The invitation is not given to people. It's given to birds. Come, gather for the supper of God. And then to eat the flesh of all these different people. What is this about? John here is drawing on the prophet Ezekiel, who in chapters 38 and 39 writes about this mysterious enemy, Gog and Magog, enemies of God's renewed people in the future. And Ezekiel foretold that Gog and Magog would oppose God's people. Now, you should know scholars are all over the place about what Gog and Magog actually are. I'm not going to settle that. I'm just going to tell you that they're not the point. The ultimate point is God. He is the sovereign over them, and he brings judgment. Ezekiel 39, God commands his prophet to speak to the birds of every sort. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast, and you shall eat flesh And drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. Way back then, God was telling his marginalized, his persecuted, his sinful people that in the future, those who preyed on them will themselves become the prey. And here is John showing us this is God's end time fulfillment of that. And it's so shocking. Flesh, flesh, flesh. It's this vivid picture of unburied bodies, which is especially dishonorable in the ancient world. And the birds are invited to eat their their flesh, and the vision is, is so comprehensive. Kings and captains and mighty men and their horses and riders, all men, slave free, small and great. No one is excluded. Do notice that God does not ultimately see wealth or poverty as the picture of blessing or favor in this world. Status in society is not ultimate. What is destiny defining is your relationship to Christ, whether he knows you savingly or not. And this invitation to this supper is striking because it's so different from the invitation to the other supper that we saw just last week in this chapter. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in Revelation, we've seen the contrast between the bride and the harlot. There's also this contrast between these two suppers. And you will be invited to one of them. And that invitation will not be able to be ignored. 
if, if you struggle with, with seeing this, this judgment scene as good, you must stare at the cross of Christ. You must see the worth of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is a picture of judgment of those who rebel against Christ, the King, who left the glories of heaven to save undeserving sinners. You cannot look at this world as innocent. This world has mocked God in the flesh. This world has opposed Christ's church. It twists his word. It defies his word. And yet even now, Christ shows patience to those who defy his word. And when he comes, it will be righteous. It will be right. John's readers knew this. So many of you have known the opposition of this world. You know this. I do wonder if if some of the the teaching in Scripture on the judgment of Christ makes some Christians wince because they felt no opposition from the world. Because they're all too comfortable in this world. Is that you? We rejoice in Christ's coming in his judgment because it means Christ will be vindicated. His glory will be vindicated. This is not an invitation from a petty tyrant king. This is the world's true king whose death and resurrection and ascension have qualified him to have all authority in the universe. But I want you to notice something else. When does this invitation come? It comes before the battle, not after it. In soccer or football, sometimes... Before we shoot a goal, we, we call out the place where the ball is going to land in the net. So, so not only are we totally disrespecting the keeper, because we're saying we're going to score, we're also saying we're, we're telling you exactly where the ball is going to land, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Now, that's an act of confidence and bravado that I admit I've, I've engaged in and rarely delivered on. We call it calling your shot. You're declaring the outcome of the event before the event itself in a totally different way. This is exactly what Christ is doing here. He's giving the invitation to the feast before the battle. He's not threatened by the kings, by the mighty men, by the captains, the great ones of the earth. He's calling the shot before the battle itself. Christ reigns over his enemy. Christ reigns over the world. Christ reigns over you and me. And depending on your posture toward Christ, that should give you comfort or fear. If you're a Christian, I want you to think carefully about what it is that makes you worry. What worries you? Think about that in view of Christ's authority. Christ is not panicked. Christ has all power. He's, he's, he's preparing for. He's making plans before the event itself. Now think about this. This Christ has bound himself to you. He will only work for your good. Nothing in all the universe, the powers, seen and unseen, can separate you from his love. Nothing can stop even the tiniest detail of his eternally good plans for you. Have you made what you worry about greater than the risen king Jesus he calls his shots he makes provision preparation before 
the battle. Brothers and sisters, Christ's sovereign authority is not a private fact. This is public reality. And one day when he appears, he will issue an invitation and it will be irresistible. Christ invitation. And finally, more briefly, Christ's judgment. Christ's judgment, verses 19 through 21. Christ's judgment. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is it. It's the last battle. It's the the sixth bowl that we saw back in chapter 16 in which the whole world was assembled for a battle on the day of God Almighty at that place that is called Armageddon. Here's John cycling back for us, giving us more detail about that. Remember, this is a vision of the end when the whole world is opposed to Christ and his church. It's not a specific battle in one specific location. Specifically here, John is concerned to show that the destiny of the the beast and the false prophet, their ultimate judgment, the beast that's rising out of the sea, the the beast rising out of the earth. We met them back in chapter 13. They stand for the anti-Christian state or government, an anti-Christian religion, man-made religion and philosophy and all of its different forms. Both of them oppose Christ Here's the kings of the earth gathered with their armies against the risen Christ sitting on the horse and his army. And just like the rest of this book, Christ is revealing to us the conflict ahead of time. Not that we will fear, but that we will trust him as the sovereign. And whenever and however this takes place, it will not surprise Jesus Christ. He's moving history to this day. I don't know what maybe you heard or think about Armageddon, but I hope that this text shows you how anticlimactic it is in one sense. We already know there's an invitation given. And I want you to look at this battle. This is not a battle in which there's going to be changing momentum on both sides, where it looks like one side's going to win and then the other side comes back. We literally move here with both sides gathered in verse 20 to verse 20, uh, verse 19 to verse 20, The beast is captured, as well as the false prophet who had deceived many and received the mark of the beast. Remember, the the mark of the beast has nothing to do with a physical mark. It reflects who you serve, who owns you spiritually, just as being sealed by the lamb means you're owned by the lamb. The beast and the false prophet are captured, and they're thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest of their armies... They're slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him sitting on the horse. Christ has the final word. Just like that. They're gone. It's over. Imagine this. Suddenly there's a world in which the beast and all of his wickedness and opposing the people of God is gone. No more tyrannical governments. 
The false prophet is gone. No more false religion. No more idolatry. Banished. Judged. A certainty. Not a wish. We're going to live in this world. This has warned you if you're opposed to Christ, this should comfort you and point your eyes forward if you know Christ. This gives us fuel for patience in this wicked world. Christ will judge. He will banish the beast. We as Christians, we, we may look really foolish at this point in history. We're waiting on a Savior that we cannot see, but we're so confident he's going to deliver us. What confidence do you have in your Savior? Christ will deliver us by defeating every enemy. Can you just imagine a world in which Christ's truth is is no longer opposed? When wicked governments and lies are a distant memory from an age that is over. On the authority of this text, I can say the risen Christ means for you to imagine that world. We hope in that world as we live in this world. Notice those birds that were invited to this supper. The birds were gorged with their flesh. The predators will become prey. And the only way you will see this as good is when you see sin for the wickedness that it is and you see Christ and his cross as the revelation of God's grace and justice for the absolute wonder that it is. This is not the outworking of judgment from a petty God. This comes from a holy, good, and gracious Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is so different from human governments. Christ the King died for his people. So many human governments kill their people. While God is exceedingly patient, God will not be mocked. He created this world by the word of his mouth with no struggle. He will judge this world by the word of his mouth with no struggle. This final part of Revelation, Christian, is not meant to frighten you. It's meant to encourage you. When we come to these final chapters, we see all the enemies of the Lamb of God judged, put in their place. It was In chapters 15 and 16, in those bowls, we saw those with the mark of the beast, judged by God. In 17 and 18, we saw the the history of Babylon and the judgment of Babylon as God destroys Babylon. And here we see God's judgment on the beast and the false prophet. The only spiritual enemy left is the dragon. And be confident, Christ will have the final say over his destiny. Brothers and sisters, Christ returned reassures us this is Christ's world. He will not return when he is invited. He will return at the appointed time of the Father on his timetable and no other. Do not think of our risen king as passively standing by in heaven. He is ruling the nations until they become his heritage and the ends of the earth, his possession. And together... We're but one outpost, a real outpost, a colony of heaven among so many others in this world bearing witness to this king and this kingdom. 
We go to the world because Christ has come into the world and Christ has overcome the world. And one day our king, who's slain for sinners, will return in glory. May the risen Christ give us grace, patience, and faith to live this day in view of that glorious day. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the return of Christ and the hope and the encouragement that it gives us. We pray that as we've heard your word this morning, we would respond in faith, that you would increase our affections, our love, our reverence, our joy in Christ. We pray that you would make us patiently wait that we might reach that day faithfully. And we pray this in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.